definition of my art is that I want to help people capture the precious moments in their lives because they're fleeting moments. They're here today. They can't be gone tomorrow. And that could be about themselves. could be about a loved one. It could even be about a gardener. All those things that you cherish now but may not be here again tomorrow. How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we learn from some of the top leaders and experts in the world, from CEOs to neuroscientists, Broadway directors, and more, about how to engineer success in every area of our lives. Welcome to Success Engineering. Hello, everybody. Whether you've been listening for a while or whether this is your first time here, we are happy to have you. Before we jump into the episode, it would be awesome if you could write a review for the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. So it takes less than a minute or two. It's pretty straightforward. So you click on the show, you scroll all the way down to the bottom, and there's a little button that says write a review. And as always, if there's an episode you really like, send it over to your friends. They'll probably like it too. Thank you so much. And let's get back to the show. So welcome back to Success Engineering. I'm your host, Michael Bauman, and I have Hans van Veerd on. He's a biologist and he's spent years managing zoos all over the world, originally from Netherlands and then moved to Australia. And then in the last couple years, he actually decided he wanted to pursue his passion for art. So he creates beautiful works of art in you know, charcoal and oil and watercolors, a number of other mediums as well, with a primary fascination around people and the moments that you can capture with that and what makes them individual. And I'm just really curious to hear how that works and his mindset and stuff behind that. So welcome to the show here, Hans. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we were talking a little bit before we started the call here, but can you share for the audience how many languages that you actually speak and which languages those are? Well, yeah, I'm a little bit embarrassed about that. Uh, but the background <laughs> is being Dutch. Uh, nobody speaks Dutch except for the Dutch and the South Africans. So already in high school, we had to learn English and French and German up to a level that you could actually converse with people when you visited those countries, except for the French. Because the moment I remember when we went on vacation to France and you spoke a few words of French. They thought, okay, this guy speaks French. And then they would answer to you in a speed that was about 10 times your speed. And then you would be totally lost. Other than that, it did sort of free you up to a level that you could actually communicate. And then my career brought me to quite a number of countries about the world in South America, Southeast Asia, Egypt. So I had to learn uh, Spanish and Arabic and Indonesian. So hence those, those languages. Yeah, so I'm curious, which one was the most difficult for you to learn? I think it was and still is Arabic. It's funny, we have a, a coffee cafe around the corner and the owner is Lebanese and slowly things are starting to come back. So mm. I do a bit of practice there, but it was difficult to learn because she wrote the language is so different. And of course, the reading and writing is different. I can still decipher it. But then I'm only at the level that I can read out loud what it says as I would read Finnish, but I still wouldn't have a clue of what it says, except for those words that I remember from memory that I used at the time. But that was the most difficult because it was so alien to all the other languages that have all their comments. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I just saw that and I was very fascinated by that. And I know you've done stuff all over the world. I wanted to 
take it back to the, the childhood a little bit. And your dad was an artist and an illustrator. And I'm curious, are there, are, were there any specific moments that growing up really stood out to you in terms of you discovering your personal love of art or even like fleeting moments that you wanted to capture with art? Because I know that's a thread that's followed you into what you do right now. Yeah. One of the things that I do remember is that whenever my father was doing his work, my brother and I would be sitting on the floor and we would be drawing as he did. So it's in the genes to an extent. And one thing that I do remember is that my father, when I was maybe 10 or so, bought me a canvas. And then we worked together uh, with our canvases on easels. And I drew a seascape from a photo or something. And I found it incredibly difficult. But I also remember him encouraging me what to mm -hmm. look at or to, what to try to capture in that. And the other thing is, whenever we went on vacation, I took paper with me and I drew stuff. And I still do, but that's where it started. So I've been drawing uh, all my life and very much inspired by by my father. My father, by the way, who in the Second World War in Holland, when it was occupied by the Germans and in the last severe winter, which was termed the hunger winter because people in the western part of the country were starving because there was no food and there were all these blockades. He tried to go to the eastern part where there was still some affluence in terms of food and he painted farmhouses and farmers families and he bartered them for food and that mm. what he brought back to the family. So yeah, it is something that has a deep history of family. Oh, wow. That's really fascinating. So, I mean, you re revisited that. I mean, you've, you said you draw like all the time and stuff, and that's definitely helped you. But I'm, I'm curious to switch to the, the part where you spent the majority of your life in. Where did your love of animals and, and nature come from as well? That's the other question I wanted to ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, Michael, I think it was concurrent. I've always been trying to keep animals in, in aquaria at home. And when we were in France, for example, on that vacation, I, I used to try and catch lizards and bring them home. And it hasn't stopped since then. So I've always had aquarium fish, snakes, lizards, stuff. They would escape and they would drive my parents crazy. They would fall on the floor and I had to catch them them back in the tanks. And so that has been with me all my life. And when it came to choosing a career, for some reason, doing art was not really on the agenda. And I'm not sure I've been thinking about it because two of my cousins did go to art school. And for some reason, I decided not to, but it could have been art, I think. But because of my hobby with animals, I studied. And so you became a biologist and then ended up, I mean, managing a number of zoos all over the world. I, I am really curious on what goes into the operational management of a zoo on the back end. Like, what does that look like either on a day-to-day -day basis or what are like the variables that the moving parts that are always thinking of and managing? Yeah. Um, I think what helped was, of course, you need to have some sort of, yeah, passion is probably a bit an overused term, but still you need to have a very strong feeling and empathy with animals, depending on what sort of purpose they would have for you at that moment. I've also worked in aquaculture, which is the, the culturing, raising and breeding of fish for human consumption purposes. So that was a totally different approach because the fate of those animals was clear from the onset. It was to be killed and eaten. But even there, 
there was an underlying thought of uh, you are responsible for animals' lives, so you need to make sure that as best as you can, you make it a life worth living before the demand is ended. Now, in a zoo, the objective is totally different. It is about having animals in what is, uh, in an old-fashioned term, called uh, the collection. And those animals are there to not entertain people, but to show people how magnificent they are in the first place. So you want people to really stand in awe, but also to show people how extremely rich their lives should be, how beautiful they are, but also what role they play in the natural world or what is left of them and how they could or should be able to exist. So the animals in the zoo are much more an ambassador of their wild counterparts and they serve to connect people with those animals. and. Zoo people, including myself, believe that is much more successful when you're actually eye to eye with an animal, albeit maybe separated by a pane of glass, rather than on the screen on the television or an iPad. And in order to run a zoo and the people that work there, you need to have that sort of basic feeling about animals and why they are. And once you have that, then at least you can talk to keepers and managers and PR people and, uh, you know, docents, educators about those animals, because then you can convey what you think is important in their messaging or in the case of keepers in their approach. And the tricky thing is, and I think it would be the same for people working in hospital. When you work with a lot of people that are very passionate about what they do, keepers are very passionate about the welfare of their animals. And I know a lot of keepers who I think if you would really ask them and they would answer honestly, they would rather have a zoo without visitors because visitors are constantly disturbing what they want to do with their animals than having their animals perform and entertain the visitors. So having to deal with people that are less passionate and sometimes less understanding of the financial and commercial and whatnot needs of the zoo was particularly uh, important in my job. So managing that group of people making sure that the basics were covered in terms of animal welfare and all that, veterinary care, but also making sure that they were visible to the public without detriment to its welfare. So those challenges were sometimes difficult because they come from very opposite sort of directions and you have to find common ground there. But at times you would have to come to the conclusion there is no common ground. So maybe this species of animal, because of its behavior or natural inclination, should not be in a zoo because there's no way you can show it without the animal suffering in terms of whereas other animals are perfectly suited for uh, alive in a zoo because they don't really mind people uh, staring at them. And during lockdown, even though I wasn't working in a zoo anymore, during the prolonged lockdown periods here at Melbourne, some of the animals, who were so used to visitors walking past their enclosures, sort of missed them and sort of adapted their behavior because their routine was gone. So there is also almost like with your household pet, there is an interaction between the human and the animal behavioral parts that make up a day. And uh, that happens in the zoo as well. Uh, even though they're wild animals, they are somehow adapted to life in the zoo. And if they cannot adapt, and show signs of, you know, boredom, stress, or uh, prolonged stress, 
then you would have to take, make a conclusion that that animal shouldn't be there. For example, I've worked in a city zoo where there was a polar bear. And polar bears in nature, particularly males, they walk for literal tens and tens mm. or maybe hundreds of kilometers to go from one part of the territory to the other or to try to find a seal hiding under the ice. And they were built and evolved to do that walking. So if you have that animal in the confines of maybe a 10 by 10 or so, as in the very old zoo enclosure, that animal would be totally stressed. It would, you know, pace and it would sway all those signs that tell you that animal is not happy. And when people, the visitors, become aware of normal animal behavior and abnormal behavior indicative of stress, that goes and works against the zoo. So for that zoo, we had to take the decision to move the polar bear out to another zoo, to a much uh, bigger enclosure. And that was such a difficult discussion because although rationally, many people, including the visitors, knew that was the best thing to do, emotionally, neither the visitors nor some of the keepers wanted to part with that animal because it was so iconic. It was so part of their, you know, week, weekly routine visiting the zoo. So those are the things that I found difficult. So the tension between animal welfare, what people want, as in the specialists, the keepers, and what the visitors expect, and the financial consequences of whatever compromise you reach there. Because after all, you need to survive financially, not only to run your zoo, but also to be able to make your contribution to nature conservation by participating in reintroduction programs and whatnot. Mm. It was a long story. No, I, I really appreciate it. It's interesting to see, like you talked about those different, the different moving parts. And as you mentioned at the end, eventually you just have to, you have to compromise on some and you have to just discuss it in a way that finds the best medium point for, for all of those sometimes divergent variables. Yeah. So I was curious, and I didn't even think about this, with COVID and not having visitors, how has that affected zoos just in general, like financially and stuff? How has that affected them? Do you know? I know you're not in that right now, but I know you still keep a pretty close eye on that. Yeah, I think overall, most of the, let's say, the good zoos, the zoos that have the animal's welfare front of mind and that have a tangible or visible contribution to animals' well-being across the globe and therefore had been successful commercially and therefore had a good relationship to their, you know, council or government or otherwise. Most of those have received financial support from those local governments or state governments, uh, not only in Australia, but world. And it doesn't mean that they didn't at times had let go of certain segments of their staff, particularly, you know, in the visitor's uh, realm and in cafes and all that, because clearly they didn't get any visitation. But the essential parts that had to do with the animals, maybe online teaching and all that, they were in, in many zoos kept intact also because of support of, of uh, others, not only the governments, as I mentioned, but also visitors, associations and all that. So. I think all in all, quite a few were able to pull through. Uh, and I don't know about the smaller zoos, but I could imagine that the smaller zoos, some of them went under. I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. I could imagine. 
Yeah. The other aspect I wanted to ask about, you know, the curiosity that I have around is how do you go about finding animals to be a part of the zoo, like finding and the transportation aspect of that? Like, what does that look like on the back end? Okay. I think in the old days, zoo directors just went out to Africa or Asia and caught the animals. And sometimes it sounds negative, but sometimes they were able to catch the last remaining specimens or individuals of a certain species, such that, for example, due to zoos, the European bison or one of the South Everett species of gazelles is still alive mm-hmm. because of zoos, because zoos that had them, bred them and shared them with other zoos. And therefore the species is still alive, albeit not in the wild, but in captivity. But those were the old days. These days, uh, no animal is obtained from the wild anymore, justly so, because they're not too many left. But because of all those breeding programs, there is a fair number of animals that have representatives across the globe in zoos. And were the more important species, important as in visitor-wise, or because they are so rare, the international zoo organizations have appointed people that coordinate the let's say, the population management across those zoos of that particular species. And the zoos that are part of those associations knowledge the, say, the authority is such that if that person, based on genetic analysis and comparative analysis, behavior and, you know, stability in other respects, can suggest that elephants from a zoo in the U.S. move to a number of females in a zoo herd somewhere in Europe in order to be the sire of a number of calves that he would hope would then be born in the zoo in Europe, which could then be distributed over other zoos that don't have any uh, viable genes in the population. So most of the animals in zoos are obtained, if not all, through other uh, zoos that already have them and the more important species that is under the you know, watchful eye of a coordinator who makes sure that inbreeding is postponed as long as possible and that the populations are kept healthy in, in a number of respects, but also genetically for as long as possible. The only exception is that sometimes there is a need for an intervention where a species is so threatened in a wild that if you don't do anything, you just leave it be, you're sure that they will be extinct within the next 10 years. And then after having received all the uh, approvals of governments and conservation authorities, a zoo can go out and catch a number of those animals, bring them back to the zoo, start up a breeding program within that zoo and maybe a couple of zoos. And once the numbers have grown, they can either reintroduce them to that particular habitat where they got them from or secure another area. And some of those programs have been really uh, successful. For example, a bandicoot, which is a marsupial here in, in Victoria, in Australia, has been reintroduced and has also been removed from the list of threatened species because the numbers have grown so much that they're secured for now, but also vultures in uh, some of the Mediterranean islands in Europe and some of the ferrets in the U.S. and the Californian condor and maybe the anteater in Argentina. There's quite a number of good examples of successes. Unfortunately, there's still a much larger number of uh, failures uh, 
not because of the intervention, but just because the decline is so rapid that there's no way. Sometimes animals, species go extinct before you even know. Mm. So yeah, that's how people, how zoos obtain their animals. Yes. So along that category, I wanted to ask, what are some of the things that kind of make you saddest about where the world is right now in terms of just nature conservation and animal protection? And, you know, what are the things that, you know, should be looked out for or the things that you're definitely paying attention to? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a, a couple of things. I think there is the element of greed and short-sightedness mm-hmm. in humans that make for such a rapid decline of, for example, the rainforest in the Amazon and a few other areas. And I think if we were able, that maybe it's too ingrained in species, if we were able to curb the degree and be more with what we have rather than always wanting to have more, that some of that that we now think is necessary for us to develop food could be considered not necessary. If there is a lesser degree of need for I don't know, hardwoods or maybe even soybeans or other stuff, then a lot of those places could kept intact. And the other thing is that there is an element, I think, of trying to go back to the pristine nature of nature as it was maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And that would include the introductions of uh, species to parts of the world where they were not before. Uh, like in Australia, but also other parts of the world. And I think it would be good to, for us humans, come to terms with that. Because for us, but also for the rest of the beings, the world has become almost like a global village. I read a piece once, not so long ago, of certain fish species which migrated over the decades through the Suez Canal from the Red Sea into the Mediterranean, led to an enrichment of the fish stock in some cases. But it also has led to a domination of unedible species of fish in other cases, which then sort of became a disaster for the local fishermen because they could not no longer catch the species that they could market, but they only called the species that was essentially toxic for human consumption. But the world is becoming more a unity and therefore um, trying to go back to how it once was, I think is futile. And I think it's more about trying to re, almost re-engineer nature. After all, humans are still part of nature, even if we think that we're not, so that it can provide for those new species as well. For example, if you go to Amsterdam, one of the most conspicuous bird species that you would see these days is the ring-necked parrot. And that one comes from India. And it's now breeding all over the place. And I'm sure it has driven quite a few other bird species, not into extinction, but into dwindling numbers because it occupies their nesting hollows and trees and all that. But it is the new fauna of Amsterdam. And that goes for a lot of places. So on the one hand, curbing your greed and trying to keep and preserve what is left. But on the other hand, also accept that things have happened and the clock cannot be turned back. That makes sense. No, it does. What are some maybe practical things that people can do to help out with that? And I don't know if that's a, you know, your your area of expertise, but I'm curious around that. What does that look like? 
Well, it's not my area of expertise, but I do think we, as in each individual person or household, can do a lot of things that accumulated would have an effect to make an impact. Like one of the things that is really obvious here in this part of the world in Australia is that all the plastic from balloons and all that stuff ends up via currents in the ocean on some of the islands where seabirds die because they cannot distinguish between what is edible and not edible. They just go for color in some cases. Die because they starve, because their stomachs are full of plastic. Those are typically things that we, all of us, can do to, to reduce that problem. So I think it really starts in the household. Hmm. And I think, you know, at the more national level, we can do more in terms of turning to the other energy sources and all those kind of things. And perhaps that would have an effect long-term. And I think that is what we need to do. If we don't do that, if we only look at governments and hope for them to come up with measures that would have an effect, you know, in the next few decades, we have to start ourselves. I think that plastic, and there's other examples as well, of course, is a really good example because it's something we can start doing now. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So I wanted to transition a little bit, you know, as your life transitioned, you moved to Australia and then after, you know, a number of years, you decided you wanted to pursue art again, reawaken that. What was that process like for you? Like, how did you come to that decision? And also, was there any, you know, kind of apprehension and fears and kind of anxiety around that decision as well? Yes, it was. So the reason was, you know, very down to earth, two and a half years ago. In the zoo and organization that I worked in, there was a, a restructure, as you have any every so many years. I was uh, part of a restructure sitting at the other end of the table a number of times in other zoo organizations. This restructure meant that they, the board wanted to have the organization flatter and some of the work pushed back to the people who actually did the work. So... The layer that I was working in, the echelon that I was working in, a general manager in my case, the animal sort of related things, together with the similar general managers or visitors uh, operations, that layer was removed and I was offered a very generous package, which I took. And of course, there is a lot of apprehension because I had been doing zoo stuff for the past so many years before I worked at the university, etc. But another transition was, yeah, was something that was difficult to grasp in terms of what the consequences would be. Anyway, I took the generous package, so there was no financial hurry or urge to come up with a new job uh, the next day. So I took my time. And I even applied for a couple of jobs that were in the same sort of field, roughly. But then I realized that I had been spending a lot of my free time in the past 10 years, because particularly in Australia and particularly in Melbourne and Victoria, the climate is very conducive to the arts and there's lots of possibilities to to make art in studios and all that. So in those past 10 years, I spent a lot of time developing myself as an artist. And then I thought, well, maybe that is something that I could pursue. Around that time, somebody alerted me. I think it was a colleague of 
to the existence of the OBL organization, the online uh, business liftoff organization run by Trudy Rankin. So I applied to be part of that. I got accepted and they pushed me through together with a lot of other people through, I I think it was almost a one-year sequence of tutoring in order to, first of all, define your business goal and then how to market your business goal, set up your own website and everything that goes with it. And uh, based on that, I started thinking about, okay, maybe I should try to monetize my other passion in the sense that I get to do what I also like very much, which is making art, but perhaps also make a living out of that. So that's what I did. And the apprehension was, of course, that there is a big difference between making art and do the occasional sales at an exhibition, a group exhibition, and deciding that you really want to make that your primary source of income. So I did that. And I had to redefine my thinking rather than just drawing and painting because I liked it. I had to come up with a purpose, not only for myself, but also for the people that I wanted to engage. Once I had that, it started moving into something that looked viable. So definition of my art is that I want to help people capture the precious moments in their lives because they're fleeting moments. They're here today. They can be gone tomorrow. And that could be about themselves. could be about a loved one. It could be about the grandchild. It could even be about their garden or home because they're moving house. All those things that you cherish now but may not be here again tomorrow. And if you want to have a memento of that in a more expressive and maybe a more precious way than just another photo on your iPhone, I can help making an artwork around that for them. So based on that premise, I started developing my own business. And I'm now at the stage, but it takes a while. It took me a long while before I realized, yes, now it's really taking off. I've just come back to art fair in Sydney, and I was there with maybe a hundred other artists from all over Australia. I had a booth there, and to my great surprise and um, joy, I noticed that not only did I sell, but they also was on par with what the others showed. So that gave me a sort of reassurance that it was a good choice. So yeah, that's what happened. So there was a lot of apprehension initially, but then you also start to think in terms of marketing. What I did maybe two years ago, and then one year ago, I thought, okay, I have been a teacher at university. I love teaching. I love my art. Why don't I try to teach my art? So I approached one of the societies that I was a member of. I said, hey, can I do a workshop in the January break, in the summer break? And he said, yes, of course. And I did one, I did another, and then they asked me for regular classes, and then other art societies asked me for regular classes. And as it looks now, for the next term, starting uh, mid-January, next year until May or so, I'm fully booked for uh, art classes. Mm. Once you have gained the confidence in your work that it can be important to other people, then that's where it starts to move. It's my experience. So I love that process of you just really defining the one for yourself, what you want your art to be, and then also what other people would value. And that specific aspect of it being art that captures fleeting moments. Can you talk about the self-portrait that you did that kind of ties in 
with that around art compared to you know just taking a photo that we have. So you did two two different renderings of yourself, and then you had an iPhone in the portrait as well. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am a great admirer of the Austrian uh, painter Egon Schiele. He was a painter and an artist from the early 1900s, and at the time. He was both admired and he was also shunned because what he made was very daring, sometimes very sexual drawings or models. But one portrait that he made, a drawing, was a double portrait of himself, one looking down, the other looking up. And I've always liked that one. And during lockdown, the mood swings you have, as many of us had during that period, one is looking a little bit different from the other, reflective of the mood. And to, you know, the time of today, I added the iPhone because you look at your image in the iPhone, maybe you get some, some inspiration from that, but that was an essential element in the whole thing because iPhones were one of the lifelines, I think, with the outside world, but it also meant that was what I got my inspiration from in terms of photos. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. One, because it's like, you know, you do the art and it incorporates that iPhone partially because they're so much part of our life. And as you mentioned, it's a tool that connected us with the outside world. It's a means for capturing things. But then it also has got juxtaposition with what you do, where you're actually taking these moments and creating creating art with it. It's something that you hang up on your wall. Not, not saying people don't necessarily hang up their photos, but it's a lot less. It can get lost in just the library of, you know, all the Good. different things. So I like that kind of Exhibition. One hand, it's important. It's vital. It serves a purpose. And then on the other hand, there's an intentionality around creating a specific piece of art that captures that moment as well. I just thought that was fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to to talk about is just how your the I mean your your artwork is beautiful, and you do a lot of different things, cityscapes and in nature and things as well. But really known for your people and your ability to be able to capture people. So. Can you talk about some specific instances where you were able to capture just at a pretty deep level what people are exhibiting and even the emotions and stuff behind that and why that kind of stands out to you and is important to you? Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to anyway. Yesterday or the day before, I had one of my last art classes of this term and we we did a bit of uh, live drawing. Uh, there was a model there in studio somewhere. And what I tried to convey to the students was that in anything you draw, whether it's a a building or even a landscape or an animal, but particularly a person, it is to try to look for those elements that are most particular to that person, to that person's face, to the features. And once you've called those, then the work is already half done because Almost like in a caricature, people are looking for those traits that make that person stand out as compared to other people. And once those traits are there recognizably or exaggerated, as in the caricature, people get that. And then the rest can sometimes even be left out. So that is one, to try and look for those things that are specific to the person. And what I realized is that sometimes you... You even start doing that subconsciously. The biggest compliment I received ever was from Molo here in Melbourne. She was posing in the studio of the Victorian Art Society here in Melbourne. 
And I drew her uh, quick as I usually do. And then in the break, she looked at my work and she said, you really captured my mood because I drew her kind of sad and, you know, uh, introverted and all that. And uh, she said, you captured my mood because this is exactly how I felt because two days ago, her father had passed away and she was grieving. And she said, you captured my grieving. And I wasn't even aware of that happening to her, but that was the greatest compliment I ever got. So I think if you are really trained and you can, everybody can train themselves to, to watch and observe and look at what makes something somebody. If you do that often enough, you can also get those underlying things apparently. And in terms of what it means for a line on the canvas on the paper, it probably just means one little twitch in a corner of an eye and going downwards rather than upwards, or uh, one uh, corner of the mouth going a little bit further down or up, or, you know, all those kind of things. Yet you even define precisely that that would sort of constitute an overall image of a person who is grieving. So that was just beautiful. And that is what I tried to do in my work, and that is also what I tried to convey to uh, to other people and for example in animals it translates into want to draw a picture of a running cheetah uh, the essential part is that you draw the head of the cheetah because it is kept still because it has to keep its eye on its prey and all the rest can be fluid and emotion so what you should not do i believe if you want to convey the speed of the cheetah accelerating to catch them Antelope. What you should not do is to precisely draw up every element of its physique, including all the balls, as if they're still frozen. Now you should draw them, maybe not necessarily as you see them, but as you can imagine the movement, and that is just speed and you know acceleration. All this kind. Of thing. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I think it's really interesting the aspect of, like you talk about art brings us into the present moment you know like you spent years your entire life you know with a sketch pad but like capturing things in front of you and you have to have an acute sense of awareness and really develop that and art allows us to do that my my father is a photographer and i you know dabble in it but it's interesting maybe he's at the sydney opera house or something like that and he'll be taking pictures of the moss that's in the cracks of the you know ground because of the colors or the lines of it and that growing up was really interesting for me to see. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, that's a good example. Wow. Like you can catch the richness of life through through art in, in ways that you can't otherwise. And I think that's really fascinating about what you do. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. So as we wrap up here, you know, I always like asking, you know, you've done a lot of different things in, in different arenas in life, but I always like asking my guests, how would you define success? Yeah. Like everybody, I think for a long while, I have thought of success, material success in terms of not having worries about finances, having a house of your own and all that kind of stuff. Over the years, having moved from one country to the other, I think we have already, we, as in my wife and myself, we have already developed a sense of detachment from some of the material things. Literally, home can be anywhere as long as you're together and the essential things that are important for you in your life are there. In our case, it would be my art, it would be for us our cats, and for <laughs> my wife, it would be 
where history of art stuff, as long as those things are there, then life is good. So there was already a detachment of that sort of potential success factor. I think the, the real success for me now would be to be able to live my, again, I think passion is a bit of an overused term, but for want of a better term, to live my passion and to do what I not only like to do, but what I've not come to realize is, and it may sound a bit arrogant, that I know I'm good at, and mm -hmm. also to be able to share that with other people. And sharing that means to be able to sell uh, my work every now and then, but also to share it in terms of conveying my knowledge to other people as in my art classes. And I think that has been my most gratifying experience in the past year, that people are so, so happy when somebody shows them that the way to move on in art and to make art part of their world and also to use art as a window to the world when the rest of the world is closed off, all those kind of things. So success is partly that sort of appreciation materially, but also otherwise of what my passion is, what is also gratifying whether it's going to be success or not, I'm not sure, is to be my own boss. I've never been my own boss. I've also always worked for others. Now I'm the one who sets the terms and I suffer the consequences when I did not do that correctly, but at least I know it is my doing and I'm uh, the one who makes up my schedule for the day, the week or the year. And that is, I consider that a success if it is even if only remotely uh, viable uh, financially in terms of being able to live a life. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing. So where can people go? Like if they want to check out your art and potentially purchase it, where can they go to do that? Yeah. So there is my website, Art on Your Wall. It has most of my most recent work if they're interested. And there is an Instagram uh, handle, which is at Hans Van Weird, one word, lowercase. Yeah, and I'll put links and stuff to that in the show notes. The other question I had is, do you ship um, internationally or is it just locally in Australia? I do, I do. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so um, I really appreciate your time. It's you know, really fascinating. You've, you've done a lot of you know interesting things that I, was, that I was curious about. And I appreciate your perspectives on art and just what you do to capture those fleeting moments. I love it. I think they're really beautiful. Thank you. Michael, thank you very much for the opportunity and for having me. And I really enjoyed talking about what I've done because while talking, you start thinking about what it is that you actually do. And it always helps to further define, you know, goals and understanding what still needs to be there. So thanks for that. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. Before you go, I would love it if you actually just shared this episode with a friend. I'm sure while you were listening, someone just popped in their head and you're like, oh, they would probably like this as well. So it's really easy. You just click the share button on either the website or whatever podcast platform you're on and send it over to them. And chances are they'll probably like it too. Until next time, keep engineering your success.